Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, Go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Daniel Lanois is a gifted and award-winning music producer, a multi-instrumentalist, a songwriter, a score and soundtrack composer, and a singer who is based in Los Angeles, California. Originally from Quebec, Lanois spent his formative years in Ontario, Canada, where he honed his skills as a recording engineer and producer. In time, he would go on to oversee acclaimed and monumental albums by the likes of U2, Peter Gabriel, the Neville Brothers, Emmylou Harris, Willie Nelson, Neil Young, and of course, Bob Dylan. Prompted by the release of Fragments, Time Out of Mind Sessions 1996-1997, the Bootleg Series Volume 17, a staggering new collection of Dylan's music that is available on January 27, 2023, Daniel and I connected recently to discuss his role in producing Time Out of Mind, which won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year, his memories of first meeting and working with Dylan on the classic 1989 album, 
Oh Mercy, the unique and respective rhythmic approaches he employed to provide Dylan's songs with interesting foundations on both of the albums they've made together thus far, his perspectives on modern blues and the songs that Dylan attempted but left behind on Time Out of Mind, how and where the album may fit in the zeitgeist of the time, and why so many fans consider it Dylan's finest album yet, how he and Dylan share a belief in the imagination, their friendship, and when they may work together again, his own future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you, who follow and subscribe to this podcast, and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control, which is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into this podcast. With additional support from Blackbird Music, which is a wonderful record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and very friendly staff who will happily find anything it is you're looking for. Hey, say you want to order a Fragments, you know, in whatever edition. There's a 10 LP version, there's a 5 CD version, there's other vinyl editions, I believe. Uh, say you want to order that, or say you want to order a bunch of Daniel Anwar records. Well, you just go there to blackbird.ca and you type in what you want, and sure enough, like magic, you can order it right to your house. It's just that simple. Again, for more info, visit blackbird.ca. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Daniel Anwar's old stomping grounds of Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 749 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Daniel Lanois with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Dan. How you doing? Vish, I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me about my work. Much appreciated. Oh, anytime. Thank you for making time. Uh, where in the world are you today, Dan? I'm in Los Angeles right now in my studio. I have a studio in Toronto, but one down here also. And uh, down here working with uh, a great artist by the name of Particle Kid, also name as Micah Nelson. Oh, nice. Part of the great uh, Nelson family of talent. And so we, um, we've we been working down here, and we're going to continue with that when you and I are done. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. I like that there's lineage between you and the Nelson family. That's very exciting in itself. I was going to ask you mm-hmm. if you kept a home in Canada at all these days. You say you have a studio in Toronto. Do you spend much time living up in Canada? Not really. I only go there to get some work done. Uh, I have a, a very nice studio up there, and we get nice mixes out of the Toronto studio. So I'm happy about that. But living, I'm still uh, in my vagabond ways. <laughs> I go to where the there's gold in them hills somewhere, <laughs> Peru next. <Yeah>. <laughs> I um I know I asked you how things were going, uh, but I want to, beyond texting you at the time, I want to take a second just to check in and see how you're doing generally, because I know you've had a rough couple of years. My condolences again um, about the loss of your brother, Bob, a Canadian icon in his own right, um, and it's been a weird time for everyone. Um, so I just want to check in and say, again, I'm sorry for your loss and... Uh, mm. Just ask you how you're doing. How are you oh, holding yeah. up down there, Dan? I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I talk about my brother now and again, who was a a great teacher to many, including myself. He was a lot more technical than me and a scientist, really. Um, but uh, he had a, the heart of an artist, and he was always very encouraging and supportive of, of my travels and so he helped me out a lot with uh, setting up studios and transporting preamps to far corners of the world and so on. Uh, yeah. So we will always miss him. But uh, c'est la vie. And uh, but I, I'm doing fine emotionally. Uh, I work out every day. I keep my head on straight. Nothing going up my nose. And I try and stay away from the hard stuff with the alcohol. Maybe. I, Maybe well, a, <laughs> a glass of wine now and again. 
<laughs> oh, good. That's great to hear. I'm glad you're in a in a good good space. So, yeah, this is a rare opportunity, Dan. Usually, when you and I chat, it's about uh, a record you have, but uh, it's a monumental occasion for me um, to talk about uh, a record that mean that you worked on that means uh, the absolute world to me. Um, as a fan of Bob Dylan's, this is for me. I'll just tell you contextually, this is the era that got me in. You know, after being a fan as a kid. So this is 1997. I'm about 19 when this record hits me. And uh, I'm like, I know this guy. I've listened to his greatest hits records. I took them out of the library. I've heard him sample on Beastie Boys songs. I've heard the Beatles talk about him. I know some of his stuff. This is the gateway to to my left, every single record, every single compact disc, every, everything, you know, fully immersed. So your role in this means a lot to me. I want to begin, though, with you and your history with Bob's music as a fan. Uh, some of us have heard the stories about how you began working together. I don't know if I know much about um, your formative years as a music fan and whether Bob loomed large at all in that formative period when you're, you know, a teen or whatever. Were you a big fan of Bob's music growing up? I was a fan of a lot of music that changed the course of of what we do. And I think Bob's music did that. You know, some might say that the British rock bands did that. We we could talk about Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin. They did a lot for for rock and roll. And and so the the pivotal artists, uh, as I look back, are still with me. Uh, Bob Dylan being one of them. I uh, I revisited one of his tracks. Got to serve somebody. And I was uh, before my time, and I was really touched by the the rawness of that, but with the excellent production with the background vocals. And I thought something in the rough was captured. And yeah. then, if you have if you're lucky enough to capture something in the rough, in the raw, the essence of it is correct. Then you could add ornament to that. You can garnish it, and that's how I always felt with my work with Bob. We wanted to make sure that the center was correct. The center of the picture was raw, was true, and uh, was not labored over. Once we have that, then we could put time into the framing and the garnishings and the ornaments to enhance something that is pure. Yeah. In regards to other, uh, you know, Bob, um, of course I grew up with uh, thinking that the answers might be blowing in the wind. And uh, as I wander on this property here, very beautiful in California, I have 100-year-old pines, and they whisper to me every day. So the wind whispers through the pines. They whisper down to me. And I think Bob might have been right. Some of the answers are blowing in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> That's well said. Um, so again, some of us know a little bit about how you began working together on uh, the 1989 album, uh, oh mercy! But whether it was socially or professionally, do you recall when did you first engage with Bob in person, beyond being a fan? Maybe in a mm -hmm. what kind of set? I'm not even sure what kind of setting. Um, do you have a recollection of that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I met Bob in New Orleans. Um, our agent Bono <laughs> hooked us up. <laughs> we had a nice phone conversation and. Uh, uh, I was already in New Orleans making a record with the Neville Brothers, a record that became Yellow Moon, very good record. And Bob happened to be coming through town touring, and he said, well, when I get into town, I'll give you a call, and we can hook up and see how things might progress from there. And so I did hear the show. He was touring at the time. Very good. We met in a in a courtyard later. And uh, I felt an alignment right away. I knew that he was committed to his thing as I was mine. And so the there was something about New Orleans that resonated with the both of us. I was already there working, not about to move. I said, Bob, well, why don't you come back in the springtime and we'll make a record in the spring. I'll be finished with the Neville brothers by then. Yeah. And I'll find a location for us. Uh, I clarified that we, the whole setup would be there, all the instruments. He wouldn't even need to bring musicians or anything. That we could, he could just show up on the doorstep, and we can make a record. So that was the gist of our first meeting. You mentioned your agent Bono, 
And I, that's funny, but obviously by this point, you and Bono and you two had made a couple of groundbreaking records. Bono knows you. Uh, he's beginning to get friendly with Bob, I believe, in this, in this time period. Um, from your perspective, what do you suppose he saw in each of you that might lead to some kinship? Have you ever thought about that? Or has he mentioned to you, like, here's what I said. Here's what I told Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bono was never specific about what he said to Bob. But uh, reading between the lines of all this, um, Bono certainly understood that I was uh, on the path to doing the best work I could. We had done some good work already in in Ireland together. And... uh, Bono had visited me in New Orleans. Uh, I was shacked up in the in the woods somewhere, and he he turned up. Uh, we hung out for a while, so I, he understood that I was hungry for broadening my scope. You know, as a Canadian kid, uh, especially at that time before the internet, you wouldn't say that Montreal or Toronto are the you know the the basket of grooves of the world. We're good storytellers, songwriters, and so I wanted to go south to feel where the rhythm came from. Yeah. And so that was the reason I went south, and Bono knew that I'd gone south, that I was making a good record with the Neville Brothers, and he thought, okay, Lanois on fire. Let me uh, recommend that Bob hook up with him. So yeah. uh, we, Bob and I, like-minded in, in the way that we're wanting the very best. Well, let's get into this uh, Oh Mercy session just briefly. Um, what surprised you or do you suppose impacted you the most about that experience of working on Oh Mercy with Bob? Because for those who don't know, like at this point in 2023, Bob Dylan has always seemed like an icon. Uh, he is an icon now. And um, even in that period, he would have been. But in some, the narrative is that he was, by his own accounts in his book, a little lost, loss of power. In fact, he 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 expressed this. He didn't have his power. He didn't know where his core was anymore. It, 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 it is it was eluding him. So, I'm not suggesting when you encountered him, he was. It would be blasphemy to say he was diminished, but it seems like you were both <laughs> pretty hungry for something, and he was needing to find someone to inspire him or some mm-hmm. circumstance to inspire him to get his words back and to get his. Yeah. motivation back um so sorry i've gone on a tangent i want to ask about what you left those sessions with ultimately but also like i think some of us are like what is the actual experiential feeling of encountering bob dylan to work on a project together you're a professional you're an accomplished producer you're a, a confident musician in your own right but it's bob dylan so some of us would be like what the hell if that were to come up you'd just mm-hmm. be like what how were you overwhelmed or were you like this guy, I can help this guy. Do you know where I'm coming from with yeah. that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I wasn't overwhelmed. Um, I have to remember that I, at that point, or really any time in my career, I, in relatively recent times, I had hundreds of albums under my belt. Yeah. A lot of them people don't know about because I was engineering records that never really saw that much light. And so in regards to being overwhelmed, well, that disappears pretty quick if you show up at work with uh, all that experience behind you. And, and and so I had the comfort of of a lot of years of record making with me. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to go into all of them now, but uh, a lot of gospel records that I made in my mom's basement when I was a kid, to give you an example of some of what I was exposed to as, as a, a young record maker. Yeah. So I got to hear the weaving of parts, vocal parts, and I had worked with a lot of great lyricists, uh, great folk musicians from Canada, including Ian and Sylvia and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. But I'd had worked with Rick James from Buffalo just for the, uh, <laughs> the, the funk part of things. Yeah. So overwhelmed? No. Prepared? Yes, mm-hmm. very prepared. And I go on a lot about preparation. 
uh, yeah, you can prepare for a session. You know, you could sort of let's get the right carpet in and work on the lighting and bring in some equipment. That's a, one kind of preparation. But the bulk of the preparation was years and years of record making. And so to be overwhelmed, no. I was there to get a job done. We sat on two kitchen chairs. Um, we both played our guitars, got a great vocal sound on Bob, and we made sure that the center of the picture was flawlessly captured. Well, uh, well done, if I might say, on behalf of everyone who loves Oh Mercy. Um, back to my original question, how did that session impact you? What impression did it give you of Bob and his working methods, um, I assume, it might have informed how you worked with others after that. Can you talk a little bit about that? I like the private aspect of the sessions on Oh Mercy. Uh, there were not a lot of people around. Uh, I personally wanted that because I felt that if we really got Bob's vocal to occupy the center of the picture, his lyrics, his delivery, then it would not be that hard for me to frame the rest of it. Uh, the, that record was metronomically driven. Uh, most tracks were done to a Roland 808. I just piped that 808. For those who don't know, that's a little beatbox, famous beatbox. You referenced drum, the, drum machine. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you referenced yeah. the Beastie Boys earlier. Uh, <laughs> Beastie Boys used a lot of Roland 808, as Marvin Gaye did with uh, Sexual Healing. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and so we were, we were lucky to have that 808 and good work in order. And I made sure that I designed every beat to accommodate Bob's, uh, songs. Yeah. The, this gave us the advantage of overdubbing drums after, as we did on a track called, uh, Most of the Time. Mm-hmm. If you hear that, uh, when you, when you're operating by metronomic time, then the, you can go into the echoes to repeat echoes that, that complement the time. So yeah. for for those uh, curious cats out there, you could listen to um, <laughs> most of the time and hear that most of the it's got a little hip-hop in it. Yeah. Um, I quite like the hip-hop aspect of that record. Nobody ever says anything about <laughs> it, but if you check out the beats, they're they're quite electronic. Yeah. So, Oh Mercy comes out. It is a critical sensation. It sells well. Bob then goes on to make uh, three records uh, with others. Do you have a sense of why you two reconnected uh, in 1997, uh, 96, 97 to start work on Time Out of Mind? I do have a sense of um, us hooking back up. I believe that largely came from Jeff Rosen, hmm. who handles uh, Bob's publishing in New York. Jeff um, is quite a uh, an archaeologist and researcher, and he studied all of the uh, the miscellaneous uh, leftovers from Oh Mercy, because uh, we keep. A recorder going all the time through the day so uh, the, the evolution of it is can be studied and uh, he called me up and he said uh, Dan um, it's clear to me that the work that you did with Bob is some of the most soulful yeah. in recent times and it would be great if you were to go there again and so um, that then came the invitation to do um, the next album but Bob uh, didn't want to make a private record this time around. He wanted to have musicians around him. So we put an 11-piece band together, and off we went. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Now, the lore about these two sessions, for Oh Mercy and, and Time of Mind, is that Bob would provide you and your recording team with reference material, blues records, Sounds he was kind of interested, or sounds and vibes, I think, um, that he was interested in, I, I guess chasing might be the, the, the best word to, to use. Is that accurate, though? I mean, that's the lore. Did he give you tapes to listen to and say, Charlie Patton, these kinds of things, I, I think this will inform what we're going to do together. Is that true? It's half true. 
The half that's not true is there were no references made for All Mercy. The half that's true is um, I met Bob in New York in a hotel, and uh, he talked about some of his favorite records, um, beginning of rock and roll, let's say, or even further back to Charlie Patton, as you just mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I knew those records, but I hadn't heard them in a while. So I'm glad that he mentioned them because those records were made at the forefront of the medium. Yeah. So there's a sense of urgency to a Charlie Patton record that, you know, uh, a modern day blues record might not have because the form was belonged to that time. Yeah. So the, uh, the the references were all about that. They were, um, isn't it nice that you can look at something or see something and understand that it, it is pure and it came into existence because of what was happening at that time. Yeah. It was not a, some kind of a stylistic decision. Yeah. It's just what was happening then. I appreciated that Bob brought these records to light again, and I did listen to them. I listened to them with Tony Mangurian, my friend from Manhattan. Okay. And Tony and I played along with some of those records. Uh, Tony is a great drummer, and I'm a good percussionist. And so we played drums and percussion on top of old records for fun, really. And yeah. then we heard them back. Uh, we took the source material away and listened to our toppings and found the best four bars or eight bars, whatever it might have been, the magic moments, and we looped them. And they became, uh, you could consider them uh, metronomic rather than a, a metronome or a click. We could run these things and they had a serious vibe to them and we could play along with them for some of Bob's songs on uh, Time that's, Out of Mind. That's very fascinating because I assume when someone says, here are some records that are on my mind before we start our session, I would assume as a seasoned producer, you're like, okay, I get the feeling we're not going to emulate this. We're not going to copy it, but I get what you're going for. But what you're saying is in playing along with them, uh, these some of these old records, they kind of provided something of a foundational rhythmic blueprint. Is that a way of capturing what you said? That's correct. Uh, I knew that we were entering the blues territory with Bob's new songs, and I wanted to make sure that we had something to play off of in case things started sounding a little too regular in the studio because the uh, um, how can I put this diplomatically um, I don't like modern blues that much sure uh, and I'm not going not gonna to mention any names but if I'm to listen to the blues I'm going to listen to an old blues record yeah maybe some you know early B.B. King is very touching to me or uh, Howling Wolf, and so that era uh, appeals to me in regards to the blues. To make a modern blues record, you have to sidestep the sand traps of that, and so I wanted to make sure that if we went into common ground of blues, that we I had the insurance policy of these prepared loops that I knew had a serious vibe on them. Mm. And I was able to pipe those vibes to Brian Blade and Jim Keltner. Nobody else had them. I just fed it, fed them to the drummers. If we wanted the tempo to be a little slower, I just used the very speed on the two-track machine, slow it down a little bit or speed it up a little bit according mm -hmm. to our needs at the time. I see. Okay, so the drummers had a guide, a metronomic guide to, a, to an extent. That's, on some of the tracks, okay. that's correct, yes. You alluded to the fact that um, I think you referred to a New York City visit where you and Bob were uh, sitting on chairs playing guitar together. Um, is it customary for you? I assume it would be with almost any artist, but when in your working with Bob uh, ahead of actually going to uh, the studio, would you ask him to play you the material has in, he has in mind? And if so, would he have lyrics mostly done? Would he have arrangements mostly done? Uh, how did that work? The lyrics to Time Out of Mine were pretty much all pre-written. Mm. And Bob read me all of them in that hotel room in Manhattan that I told you about. Yeah. No music. No music. Okay, so he he went on a... I believe he wrote most of this in his at his farm in Minnesota. Um, I don't know about that. 
I, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you that I've read the liner notes and this is what's coming from my memory, <laughs> but I believe that's correct. Right. He just had a, a writing retreat of his own. And, uh, so, so he's reading you these things. Is that enough as a producer? I mean, it's Bob Dylan and you're probably blown away by what he's written, but where do, what do you leave that hotel room thinking the sound is going to be? Or does that even enter the picture yet? Bob read me the lyrics. He says, what do you think, Daniel? Have we got a record? I said, yes. But I left. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. Now, um, before we get to the album track listing, as it's well known, I wonder if we can discuss some of the songs uh, that ultimately didn't make it uh, in particular. And I don't know. Actually, the first thing I should uh, ask you is, have you dug into either Telltale Signs, the Bootleg Series Volume 8, or... Uh, fragments. Have you had a chance to dig into what they've done with the new uh, version of Time Out of Mind? I have not. Okay. Well, this may be a bit of a memory jog, but I want to ask you about Red River Shore and Mississippi uh, in particular. What's your sense memory of what was going on with Bob and Red River Shore? This I play these songs for my wife recently, and she's like, this is incredible. I'm like, yeah, it's not on a record. She's like, what? You know, Bob has this history of potentially leaving really amazing songs off of records. Um, do you have any sense memory of how the process for capturing Red River Shore went down? I always loved Girl on the Red River Shore. and I would have been a, you know, a front runner for me to include on the record. I forget why Bob didn't put it on, but uh, he was ultimately in, in charge of the content so you'd have to ask him about it but i always loved it i thought red river shore we'd gotten to a very nice place uh, painting a picture and I, I felt that it was a masterpiece okay mississippi uh i was less personally attached to mississippi but uh Hey man, it saw the light of day in the end. So more power to Bob and everybody. <laughs> this uh, this is a song <laughs> that I think some of us feel when it ended. So for those listening who don't know, it was attempted uh, in '97 for Time Out of Mind. It wound up on 2001's Love and Theft. And for some of us, it's just like a stellar song. Bob uh, in the press was pretty vociferous about how you weren't into it. Um, and that's fine. There's something about it that just didn't speak to you now. Are you saying you, I might, I don't gather that you regret anything about it, but you're saying you can more, you appreciate it a bit more now? Um, I'm glad it came out. I'm glad people love it. At the time, I felt that it was uh, rhythmically, um, it did not measure up rhythmically to some of the other materials. So. Yeah. Okay. You know, it had a little bit of soft shoe in it. And I'm not a fan of the soft shoe. So. Right. Okay. So, let's uh, leave uh, it at that, shall we? You know, We can leave it at that. I want to, this may, may come up as we talk about Bob's unique ability to have a melody and lyrics pretty much in place, but then explore all sorts of arrangements. I think Mississippi definitely falls into that category, but he generally seems to have his melodies and his lyrics down the way he wants them. Was that generally the case? Would you agree that he kind of had it, most things nailed down except for the music was up for debate almost, like he would just chase it wherever it went? Uh, lyrics were uh, very well written ahead of time, yes. Bob always goes into amendments, as most writers do. Yeah. And I think you're right to say that the music part uh, was um, was a bit more of a, of a blank canvas, and we could approach a given song in a, in a waltz time or 4-4 four -four time, and Bob always welcomed the, uh, the the possibilities of key changes and um, time signature changes. Yeah. Yeah. Is that unusual in your experience for an artist to have like their own, more or less their part solid, but for the band to just constantly be trying a different arrangement? Is that is that unusual? We always try and come up with the best version we can in the studio with the material that we have at hand. You know, I, I wouldn't say it's so unique to Bob. I mean, Bob has a unique way of doing things. But if you're talking about when you're in the studio, Bob Dylan aside, do we try this way, a little faster, slow it down? All the time, of course, yeah. to, until yeah. we find the... Uh, um, the most significant approach, uh, you know, that's that's always happened in the studios as long as I can remember. Uh, 
And so we uh, we owe it to the song to consider uh, different approaches. And so uh, with Bob is no no exception, you know, whatever serves the song best on the day. You mentioned there's around 11 people working on this record in the band. Uh, you had a hand in some of the melodies, I believe, and standing in the doorway and some other things. Is that right? Um, standing in the door. Is that... It's a, I will tell you it's a song... This is a song yeah. I sing to my daughter at bedtime on the guitar. Yeah. I go up there and I try it. I love it. I I, <laughs> I love it to death. Yeah. And uh, is that is that yeah. one you might have had a hand in? Well, I played that melody. Yeah. Ding 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 ding. Yeah, that's right. I played that melody. Is is that? Were you the closest collaborator in a sense in in that regard with Bob? Was he open to people suggesting ideas like that one? Beyond you, I mean. I don't remember him asking for musical ideas. We just went into the songs and people played uh, great players in the room, I might add. And they just complimented Bob's journey beautifully. You know, there was a time in the project when I suggested that we not play anything familiar, that we consider ourselves... uh, um, characters in a in a journey uh, that uh, if Bob is the slow train running, then let the characters in in the scenery be uh, um, just that complements to the travel of it. Hmm. And so, once I clarified to the band that we were looking for texture and presence without familiarity, then we were able to sidestep some of the blues-based cliches, which was a big part of my quest just to revisit what I said to you earlier about uh, making a blues record in modern times. How are you going to do that and and not bump into familiarity? So I wanted to make sure that we maximize the use of the talent in the room, uh, and we were very lucky to have some of the greats, uh, Augie Myers, to name one, uh, Jim Dickinson, and then, of course, little Danny Lanois on his gold Les Paul through a box hand. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's such a remarkable sound. And I want to talk a little bit about the context of this, the lyrics and the sound. Uh, 1996-97, I think, is an interesting time in, in pop culture, frankly. And I want to get into that in a moment. Since I'm asking you about his collaborative spirit, um, given all the thousands of records, millions of records you've made, the people you've worked with, um, would you characterize Bob as a, I don't want to say an easy person to work with? Did you get along? Was it, was it a, was it a fun process in any way? As much as a job like this can be, a very devoted heart. Um, Bob is a musicologist. I was lucky to be in his presence. We were there at a time together when we were trying to make a difference to uh, not only his work but to do something that might resonate in the culture of the time. Yeah. We went on to receive the Grammy Award for the Album of the Year. Not a very trendy record at all. We went completely against the grain. Uh, but it's nice to be reminded that going against the grain is usually the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, or as I've mentioned, Time and Mind comes out in 1997. It's considered to be the beginning of another Bob Dylan renaissance and I think it's the one that he's still sort of enjoying today. Something about this record has been a turning point for fans and uh, journalists and all sorts of people. From your perspective, Daniel, like, why do you suppose this record in particular had and continues to have this impact? Do you have any perspective on that? I think in regards to listeners, uh, listeners have a pretty good sense of what the real deal might be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you might frame a body of work with some ready to wear or, you know, uh, familiar flashes that will attract. But ultimately, I believe uh, listeners really feel the soul content of work. And um, what is it that Danny Lanwa can do? Uh, well, I, I, I use the term the soulometer. <laughs> It's like a barometer, but a solometer. <laughs> and it's really just a way of recognizing uh, 
that something uh, rings true. Um, And I think listeners really feel the truth ultimately. You know, we might get, you know, sidetracked by a bit of razzmatazz or maybe there's a pop song that, you know, everybody loves and it's not that original or thing and more power to those folks for having done that. But I think the records that uh, live on and keep resonating are the ones that uh, have the, the soul intact. Yeah. You alluded to the fact that this record won the Grammy of the, the Album of the Year Grammy Award and that it was against the grain. As I think back on this period, again, it was a very formative period for me, and I wonder if the grain had changed. Um, what I mean by that, first of all, the first time I saw you perform live, Daniel, was at this uh, another roadside attraction tour in Markham, Ontario, uh, and I would have been uh, 15. 15 years old yeah. and okay. blown away. It was you, Brian Blade. I can't remember who else was in your band. I was just like, who is this? And then, of course, I grew up a massive U2 fan. So I knew your name. I knew who you were. In fact, the first show I saw ever in my life was the year before the Zoo TV tour. All this to say, this is a time for me that was very formative, but I think for culture was very formative. I think it's notable the time of the mind um, was made and released after this explosion of underground culture, that things were, I don't know, I think people kind of were getting more used to things that were against the grain. Does that, do you know where I'm coming from there? If you think about that little explosion in the 90s of underground mm. culture, does that resonate with you? Well, I mean, it's it was the boom of hip hop would have been part of that. Um, I guess we saw a punk movement in Los Angeles. I'm trying to think of the scenes that were happening at the time. The so-called alt-rock boom was kind of happening. I think that, honestly, I think it impacted filmmaking, comedy, everything. Yeah. I think people were just, like, that kind of stuff that was... Well, name me a couple of bands, alt-rock. What, who are you talking about? Well, obvious. I guess one of the obvious ones, the gate crashers, were probably Nirvana. And all I'm, okay. getting, at, all I'm getting at with them, though, yeah. is if they were the ones that were anointed to lead the way, some of us got used to more powerful, impassioned unconventional voices screaming yes there's a take yes. of can't wait on this where bob he starts out gently and then he's, he sings a line that's not on the album and i'm going to paraphrase it and i might get it wrong have you ever feel, felt like you're just like your brains were bolted to the wall it's the harshest <laughs> image and he sort of half screams it and i couldn't help but think like something was in the air where that kind of darker imagery and that kind of delivery, we were ready for it. And I'm talking about people of my vintage who are like, fucking, the mainstream is bullshit. Let's try and find what's going on in a subterranean way. Mm. And I will tell you, and maybe you're not aware of this, Daniel, but this keeps coming up. People about my age think this is Bob's greatest record. It hit us at the exact perfect time. And I think what I'm getting at, and I don't know if there's anything you can add to it, is I wonder if it's something about that Hangover, Kurt Cobain dies. Rock music is suddenly, for some people, very depressing <laughs> because of how harsh and sad some of it is. And then Bob comes along with this collection of songs that is that is uh, eagle-eyed, but coming from isolation and a bit of alienation and yeah. and wondering about people and and humanity. Yeah. You know, what does he say? My sense of humanity has gone down the drain. Behind every beautiful thing. There's always some kind of pain. I mean, that to me, whether he knew it or not, I mean, that kind of speaks to that whole Gen X angst thing that was going on a little bit. And it's Bob Dylan. He's well past that. Sorry, I'm on a ramble, but this is kind of a a realization I made. Like, why did this album appeal to me as a post-punk, post-hardcore punk fan? Why did I, my friends were like, you're listening to, I just got every record after hearing this. John Wesley Harding, all the Dylan records. Like, I'm like, there's something to this guy. I think he's <laughs> he was ahead of the pack, and mm. I think it's something to do with time out of mind. Sorry for rambling. Does any of what I'm saying maybe resonate with you? Well, I appreciate that you referenced uh, something that was happening culturally uh, outside of this record we made with Bob. You know, the coming of uh, Nirvana and what was coming out of Seattle and Los Angeles, for that matter. Yeah. I guess uh, I was never involved with any of that, by the way. So I'm just a, a, a listener and a bystander like you or anybody else. Yes. So I appreciated early Nirvana. 
I can remember listening to that, the breakout record and I thought, okay, boy, they've really, uh, they've really hit on something here that seems true. And it could be that, you know, there was a, in the eighties, there was a lot of, uh, straight up electro dance music that, you know, might not have had, uh, the kind of fire that we appreciate from somebody going forward on the drums or, to really be pushing the heart envelope. And that's part of what happened when the Seattle sound started happening. It, it blew away all the, uh, some of the preconceptions that we were operating by up to then. I mean, I'm not speaking me personally. I mean, yeah. let's be straight about something here. I was never at all driven by what was happening yeah. at any given time. Yeah. I'm not that smart <laughs> that I'm going to start becoming a musicologist and study what's on the radio and who's doing this and and therefore uh, let's adjust what we're doing so that we can fit in none of that yeah i'm not that smart i just stick my face in the console and i turn on the solometer and we make a masterpiece if we can right so that's me okay so in regards to what was happening in the 90s i don't know man i was in the studio you tell me Fair enough. Fair enough. I appreciate that. I mean, I would count that roadside attraction tour for me personally as part of that underground explosion. So to see the curation that uh, the Tragically Hit put together on that tour and you being a part of it, that was significant to a whole generation of people. Okay. Well, maybe what you're talking about is artists finally uh, taking control of the situation. Yeah, that's that is. I mean, uh, yeah. Tragically Hip, Gordon, all those great guys. You know, they they just. They did their own thing. They weren't trying to follow uh, any kind of uh, record company uh, direction or anything. I wouldn't. I don't want to say anything bad about record companies. I like record companies. Yeah, bless their hearts. Right? Making a lot of stars for us to listen to. But maybe what you're talking about is the artist decided, okay, that's it. We're going to take over. That might be what you're hearing. It could be that. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the end of Nirvana, uh, Kurt Cobain was bringing lead belly songs to their set list. And if you did any research, you didn't have to be a musicologist necessarily, but who else was a big champion of lead belly and the blues? Bob Dylan. I'm trying to find a little through, through line for my teenage self. Like, why did these two folks resonate with me and underground culture resonate? Blues culture, in fact, not just alt, indie rock, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, they, they appealed to you because they were rebellious. And real. Yeah. There was authenticity Please. there. And I, I know what it is, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about, obviously, in pondering this record. Now, mm-hmm. I want to get on to uh, Fragments. Uh, were you involved in the process uh, of putting this together in any way or uh, the remix process in any way? No. And, and you haven't heard it, I understand? No. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you had a team of Canadian uh, engineers with you and uh, people helping you. Uh, you know, as a producer, you get uh, people assume everything is uh, coming from your hands, your heart, your soul. Is the engineering team worth citing? Did did you work together in a way that uh, brought something to Bob that um, that surprised him? Even do you think? Uh, I don't think Bob was surprised by anything because he had been visiting me. In uh, just to clarify, this record was started and finished in my Mexican theater in Oxnard, California. That's where the demos were done. Uh, we then went to Miami to record the bulk of it and then brought it back to Oxnard for all the mixing and repairs. Yeah. And at the time, uh, my good friend Mark Howard had been working with me for a good few years. We had, uh, I think we had already done, uh, had we done the Willie Nelson record? We'd done a body of work out of that theater, so we had a nice thing going. And, um, we had a great mixing system of mixed by walkie talkie. You mi- and, you mixed by walkie talkie, did you? Yes. Mark would, uh, strap a walkie talkie to his head <laughs> and I, uh, had the other walkie talkie and I would give him instructions as to what was coming up. Say, okay, let's get ready. Chorus coming up. I'll count you down. Make sure you bring up the this and that. So it was a way of keeping, uh, keeping a fun thing because you talked about fun earlier keep a bit of a fun thing going because oftentimes I can get a better idea of how, how the vocals sitting by listening from in the 
the popcorn reception area of the theater rather than <laughs> at the console. But then we did it. We do it the other way. I take over the console, and Mark would get on the other walkie-talkie in the popcorn area. Oh, that's um, But we had a lot of experience, a lot of road experience. Uh, Mark comes from the road, and that's why I hired him to begin with because I wanted somebody who could drive a truck, set up a studio, and we'd be recording in a matter of a day. And he was already doing that. He was a road dog in Canada. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm not looking for an engineer. I can do all that stuff. I'm looking for somebody who can set up a studio and get the show on the road. And he was the best at that. In fact, he drove a truck all the way from Oxnard, California to Miami full of my equipment. And we (laughs) set up our studio in Criteria. My studio being, uh, you know, my side, my sidecar Neve consoles that we use for the preamps. We brought the vocal sound that I had already used on Oh Mercy. I still have that equipment behind me here somewhere. And so Mark was very, very, uh, instrumental in getting the show on the road. And so I can't say enough about him. Thank yeah. you, Mark. The California to Florida, uh, request was made by Bob. I believe he was too distracted in California. That's why Mark, uh, <laughs> packed up a cube van and uh, drove across the country. Is that correct? I don't know why Bob wanted to go to Miami. <laughs> you have to ask him. You mentioned a sense of fun between you and Mark. Uh, did, did Bob, uh, you mentioned Bob had a devoted heart. Uh, good to work with in the studio. Serious. Did he have a sense of fun? Was he playful? Did he tell stories? Anything like that? Oh, well, there's always a sense of storytelling in the studio for sure. Long after time out of mind, Bob uh, stopped in to see me here uh, in Los Angeles, and we spent a few hours together, and he talked about how he grew up, what inspired him as a youngster, and uh, and how, in a way, the lack of information long before the internet and very little to go by, you know, you might look at a picture on an album, read a couple of the credits, and he explained to me that the to be deprived of some of what it's common to everybody now, but in those days, it opened up the imagination. And so Bob and I have always operated on a good level of imagination. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I uh, I bring to the table. Uh, pictures build in my mind. I did that when I worked with Robbie Robertson. Uh, Robbie played guitar with Bob for a lot of years. Uh, I made a record with Robbie in 1986, and Robbie paid me the greatest compliment. He says, you know what's good about you, Dan? I said, no, I don't know what's good about (laughs) you. He says, you have a good imagination. (laughs) (laughs) So imagination is... Uh, do I know how to work equipment? Am I a great editor? Uh, do I know my preamps? All that? Yes. Would that be it? No. Yeah. Imagination. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I, that comes through in all your own work and in the work you do with others. I can hear it, Dan. So uh, just so you know, you're valued and loved uh, for that work. Wrapping up, Bob has, uh, well, first of all, let's get to you. You have worked with Bob Dylan on what, most people agree are two of his most successful and and greatest records. He has subsequently made uh, all of his records since Time Out of Mind basically on his own. Have you had any conversations about working together again, first of all? And secondly, do you have perspective on why you think he might be going alone uh, these days uh, and has been since, yeah, roughly 1997? Well, it was 10 years between uh, Oh Mercy and uh, Time Out of Mine. Um, so let's say that doubles up. So have we passed 20 years since um, Time Out of Mine? Uh, where, are we, where are we at? Yeah, we're past it. We're, we're 26 years past it. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess it's going to have to hit the 30-year mark, and then I'll do another record with Bob at 30 years. How about that? You're very, you're quite friendly, right? Like you mentioned, he dropped by. I feel like you and I had a conversation once when he was in his uh, mode of doing uh, albums where he was performing the music uh, made famous by Frank Sinatra, and I believe you told me he dropped by to play you some of it, or you went to his house and he played you some of it. Is that Am I capturing that correctly? Yes, Bob came to see me, and he wanted to... Uh play the uh, quite a few songs i think 22 songs of classics that he had recorded at the uh, the old capitol studio in la where a lot of that 
that studio had record uh, was a recording place for a lot of classics yeah. of that era, and um, yeah, yeah, it was it was a nice visit with Bob, and and uh, he was curious about everything that was going on, and hmm. so I mean, I'm not a day to day friend with Bob, but uh, we we hook up now and again, and. And, uh, does he seek your count? Like, was he bringing you this music so you could just hear it? Or does he asking for your ear and your mind to assess it in some way? I think he wanted to hear that finished work through my ears. And, um, it was, you know, just a basis of respect there. Uh, Bob knows that I want the best for him. So he, he thought, well, let's play these for Landmine, see what he thinks. And they sounded great to me. I really, yeah. uh, I thought he had done beautiful work and the arrangements were stellar. Um, he had put so much effort into this. And so I was, I was quite touched by that body of work. Oh, that's lovely to hear. I love it too. Um, so maybe at the 30 year mark, you'll make another record together as you were uh, <laughs> alluding to there. What about uh, the fact that he's kind of going it alone? Um, as a producer, do you have any perspective on that? I mean, it's, he seems to know what he wants, but, um, yeah, of late, he's Jack Frost. He's Jack Frost for anyone looking at the liner notes, and he's producing his own records. Do you have any perspective on that? As long as Bob is doing his best work, then I don't care who the producer is. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I, and I, I think he is, if, if I may say. So that's good to hear. So, Dan, let's move on to uh, you. I want to, first of all, thank you so much for indulging in this uh, you know, memory jog and this exercise, um, if I haven't conveyed it enough, this album means the world to me and people like me. Um, so thank you for sharing uh, some memories and mm -hmm. thoughts about it. What about you? What are you up to? I know you were through Alberta on a tour somewhat recently. Uh, you're, you've been touring and whatnot. Any other plans uh, you want to share with us at this point? Uh, yeah, I put out a piano instrumental record in the fall. It's called Player Piano. It came out on BMG. Nice folks in Germany. And I'm going to continue doing a bit of business with them. Currently, um, I'm recording with Micah Nelson. Right. We've written, uh, I think, eight songs we have so far. And uh, that's going very well. He's a very, uh, speaking of imagination, that's a guy with a great imagination. So I think we've hit on something pretty special here and uh, obviously not released yet. And uh, rumor has it there might be a cameo uh, from his dad, uh, oh, wow. Willie Nelson, lovely. on there somewhere. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see if that comes together. <laughs> oh, if people want to learn more about your comings and goings, Dan, on the uh, computers and their telephones and whatever else exists by the time people hear this, where would you like to direct them uh, online, so to speak? Uh, well, uh, we're associated with a social media expert out of Manhattan connected with BMG. So, um, <laughs> Wayne, if people want to want to know more about me, what what do they just look up on the internet, dial up Daniel Nine they get it? Basically. Yeah, I think... Social media okay. is you're on all the, the you're on all the things. Yes, we are. I mean, it's I'm I'm not on it every day. Uh, um, <laughs> perhaps to my demise, my <laughs> social media demise. But we're trying to have a little bit of fun with it. You know, I there was a request from our social media expert in Manhattan saying, "Do you have any little snippets you could send me?" So I sent her uh, a nice four minute film of me playing piano in the front room of this beautiful uh, Bella Vista where I recorded Neil Young's Le Noise. Oh, nice. So I think on social media right now, you'll see me uh, wearing a, a Hamburg hat and a tuxedo, and I'm playing uh, the uh, beautiful Steinway Grand Piano, turn of the century that was restored, and so, so people can get a sense of, uh, of uh, the music that's still coming out of those walls. Oh, that's lovely. Well, I'm going to check that out right after we're done. Uh, before we wrap up for good, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite song from Time Out of Mind? And if so, what is it and why? I have a very fond memory of uh, Lovesick um, for slamming out the uh, the little riff with Bob. Both of us plugged into my Vox amp. I think he was playing a telly and I was playing my uh, Les Paul. So we were able to, because Bob said, 
Dan, is there any way we could really clarify the riff on this? I said, no problem. Let's plug in. So we like, love six. So that's that's a shining moment. Uh, but I like two guys in one app. That's a great sound. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I encourage people to check out Fragments. And if they haven't already listened to Time Out of Mind, they should. Uh, Daniel Lanois, it is uh, always such an honor and a pleasure to get to, to chat with you. I always appreciate you and your time. Thank you for this. And I hope we speak again soon. And I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thanks again. Uh, yeah, we, we, uh, we appreciate your, uh, your devotion to uh, all of this. So we're all in this together, aren't we? <laughs> all right, my brother. Further on down the line. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, thank you very much uh, again to Daniel Lanois for returning to this show. That was, that was a fun, dedicated talk about Bob Dylan. And we don't normally do that, as I alluded to with Daniel there. So I really appreciate Daniel making time to... Uh, Help me commemorate and celebrate Time Out of Mind. I think I expressed to you all what that record means to me and, and what this new Fragments uh, collection means to me. It really means a, a lot. It's, it's, it's wonderful. I hope I said that enough. But uh, anyway, thanks again to Daniel Anwar for appearing on this the 749th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you are looking for and it's not uh, in your pod platform and uh, you're wondering what, what the heck's going on, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on uh, Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or you can follow me directly on Instagram and Twitter at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. All the work that goes into the show is really sustained by people like you. Six dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content. Oh, sorry. Six American dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content uh, that no one else gets. You get the episodes earlier than everybody else. You get access to some bonus material, including uh, some OT with uh, current guests and also some archive material from uh, my my adventures as a as a journalist uh, preceding the beginning of this podcast, which started 10 years ago as I'm speaking to you. This is the 10th year. Just wanted to say that to remind myself. Anyway, lots of good reasons to... Uh, support the show on patreon namely I, I hope you enjoy the work that goes into the show that is otherwise available for free so again if you're interested in any of these things visit patreon.com slash creative control and support the show thank you very much thanks again also to the uh, wonderful alberta record retailer blackbird music which you can learn more about at their website blackbird.ca also want to thank pizza trocadero the bookshelf and planet bean coffee in guelph ontario and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my uh, dear friend, Jim Guthrie. He lets me use music of his on this show, and you can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Daniel Lanois, reflecting upon his work with Bob Dylan. I hope you enjoyed this, and we'll check out Daniel's music and this Bob Dylan fellow's music as well. Uh, I think he's on to something. And please subscribe to this podcast or follow it and tell your friends about it. And otherwise, I hope you're well and keeping safe and healthy and 
being good to people and all that stuff. And I will talk to you very soon. Goodbye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.